to worship you. It calls all nations to worship and to praise you. And truly, we have every reason to gather together, to praise you, to lift our voices and tell one another, tell others how great you are, to confess with our mouths, even in your presence, our gratitude for all that you have done for us and our dedication to you. What gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. We say also our own testimony. There is no greater gift that we can give in return, in response, than to dedicate our whole lives to you for the grace that you have shown to us. And so this morning, Lord, we gather together to praise you, to lift up your name, to confess with our mouths who you are, how great you are, what you have done for us. Your steadfast love toward us, Lord, is great, and your faithfulness endures forever. Your steadfast love, help us, Lord, to understand what that means. That the Almighty, perfect, righteous, holy, just God of heaven has set His steadfast, unfailing love on us. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man should lay down his life for his friends. Your word tells us that your love is displayed most magnificently in the fact that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would help us to be rid of any notion that we are worthy of our salvation, that we have earned it, that we have any bit of goodness in us on our own. Our sufficiency, our righteousness, our goodness is only by Christ. It is achieved by Christ through His perfect life. Our salvation is achieved by Christ through His death in our place. We have no other hope. So Lord, forgive us for those moments, even this week, where we have, yes, trusted in Christ as our Savior from hell, but we have from then gone back into a pattern of good works as if our spiritual life depends on us. Help us every moment to be dependent on Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, as our sufficiency. And your faithfulness, Lord, endures forever. Help us this morning to be rid of any notion that there is ever a moment in our lives where you are not with us and you are not at work in our lives or you are not preserving us. Remind us this morning, Father, that whatever it is that we face today, whether it be pleasant or unpleasant, whether we understand it or not, remind us today that your faithfulness endures 
forever. You will never leave us or forsake us. No one and nothing can pluck us out of the Father's hand, we are told in Scripture. So, Father, we pray that you would comfort us today as we consider our salvation that is all of Christ, as we consider that you preserve us and protect us. And there is not one aspect of the salvation you have described in Scripture that will be left incomplete. And so, those whom you foreknew, you will glorify. Give us confidence this morning, Lord, in our salvation. We pray that you would remove distractions from us as we look into your word now. And we ask that you would teach us. And by teaching us, we pray that you would change us. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And help us to leave this place this morning renewed in our gratitude, in our commitment to you, growing in our knowledge of Christ and in our conformity to his character. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles now and turn, please, to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. We are moving along through these first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. I hope it has been a benefit to you. I hope you have enjoyed our study. I know I have, but I also know I have a different perspective on it because I get to do all the study. That I'm telling you, there's stuff that I am learning that I just cannot share. I can share it with you privately, yes, but it's just not always going to make it into uh, every, every message, unless, of course, you would like me to start preaching for three hours on Sundays. But over the last few weeks of our study of Genesis, we have been studying Scripture's account of Noah and the Great Flood. Noah and the Great Flood. This is, as we have mentioned and noticed before already, this is a record of real events involving real people in a, in a real place at a real time. Likely not that long ago, just four or 5,000 years ago or so. And we have learned that, in fact, if you take the Bible at face value, the details become clear that this event, this flood, was a catastrophic event. And it was a universal flood of water over the whole earth by God's command. And it was a complete destruction of all life and all mankind except for those who were in the ark. We saw that last week. And the details are clear. And yet, if you notice the details of this account, the literal nature of the record and the universality of the flood are often debated among religious people. They are often rejected by others, scientists and geologists and unbelievers. And these details even are often explained away 
by some Christians. Well, why is that? Why is that the case? Why is that a big deal? Well, the truth is, on one level, the unbelievers reject it because mankind does not like to believe anything that it cannot imagine or explain. My son and I were watching recently, briefly, a documentary on Niagara Falls. And um, the documentary pointed out that early on, when the earliest settlers from Europe came over and discovered the falls, that their belief was that the falls, the Niagara Falls, were a result of a cataclysmic flood several thousand years ago. And the documentary was pointing out that since then, the geologists that have come and looked at the layers of rock and all of that have been able to conclude that indeed that belief is just a legend. And one of the scientists actually said in the documentary, we're getting our evidence, we're drawing our conclusions, not from a Bible, but from the rocks. We're listening to the rocks. And as we have seen all along in Genesis, if you are not interpreting what you see in the world by the revelation God has given, you are interpreting it wrongly or incompletely. But the truth is, that was a good opportunity for us to stop the video and to have a conversation about why is it man is so insistent on rejecting the biblical account? Because mankind does not like to believe anything it cannot imagine, or explain. He cannot imagine a worldwide cataclysmic flood so sudden and unpredictable and powerful and recent. And so, therefore, he cannot actually believe it happened. And what's more, on a deeper level than that, unbelieving mankind does not like to acknowledge God in any meaningful way. He doesn't want to acknowledge his existence, nor his power, and certainly not his authority, because to do so would mean to, that he has to admit that he is accountable to him and must submit to him. And so to believe in what the Bible says about this flood would mean to acknowledge that God is sovereign, that he is holy and just and righteous, and that mankind is not basically good, but is totally depraved. That is exactly the truth that we have been seeing in Scripture since Genesis 3. And what's even more sad about this is that many who profess to be Christians, believers in God and believers of the Scriptures, sometimes go right along with the attempts to explain away this account, this account and other supernatural aspects of Scripture and details, because, after all, they say believing in a literal flood is not essential to salvation. But we don't have to agree on all the details. We just have to agree on the lesson that the account teaches. Well, here's the problem with that. To reject the supernatural, and to reject the aspects of Scripture that are beyond our imagination, and especially as it pertains to the flood and what's intended to teach us here, to reject that supernatural is to actually minimize the significance of the account itself. And it is to undercut the authority of Scripture. And it is actually to miss 
the important lesson that the flood is meant to teach us about the character of God, about the sinfulness of mankind, and about the greatness of salvation. The flood illustrates important truths about who God is, what is wrong with mankind, and how we can be saved from God's judgment and restored to fellowship with Him. In other words, the flood is a vivid illustration of the gospel itself. And it is used in the New Testament to illustrate salvation and to give a glimpse of the future judgment of God in the world. And so if we minimize or explain away any details of the flood, then we minimize the severity of God's judgment, the greatness of salvation, and the exclusivity of the gospel. Yes, it's that serious. So these early chapters of the book of Genesis have been crucial for us in developing a Christian worldview, a proper understanding of God and of mankind and of the world in which we live. We have learned the power of God and the perfection of His creation. We have learned about the nature of sin and how it has corrupted every person to the very core. We have learned the seriousness of sin and its effects in the world, ruining creation and making us hostile toward God. We have seen that all throughout Genesis. And last week in chapter 7, we learned about the holiness and righteousness and justice and wrath of God as the sin of mankind finally reaches its breaking point and the judgment of God pours out on all the earth. But we also learned of the love and mercy and grace of God as He sovereignly saved and preserved a small remnant of people in the ark. Noah and his family. And now as we come to chapter 8, and we see the immediate aftermath of the flood, we continue to see a picture of the greatness of salvation. And for most of us who have been accustomed to a Christian environment, and you who have grown up in Christian homes, who tend to assume that the gospel is just decent news. You're used to it. You're not moved by it. The account of the flood ought to make us tremble in fear, sin, and God's judgment, and it must make us tremble in wonder and amazement that God would save us. And my prayer is that as we work through these chapters, we will not take our salvation for granted. In chapter 8 gives us a, a, a picture of the greatness of salvation. Now our attention is turned away from the flood itself and now toward those whom God has saved and how He preserves them. After the overwhelming picture of bad news in the judgment of the flood, we now see the spectacular picture of good news, of God's providence, of His revelation, and of His fellowship in the lives of those whom He saves. And so let's look together at Genesis chapter 8 in this chapter and see the lesson and the picture of salvation that God gives to us here, starting in verse 1, if you'll follow along as I read. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, 
And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place to set her foot. And she returned to him, to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, every, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Can you imagine what it was like to get off the ark? Some of you can imagine what it's like to get out of your car after a 6 to 12 hour journey. Can you imagine what it was like to get off the ark? They had been inside that box for 370 days. As it's measured in scripture, one year and 10 days. The earth now was completely different. Unlike anything they had ever known. The landscape was different. The air was different. The weather was different. There was nothing familiar about this new world. And most of all, it was quiet. It was very quiet. Because they are the only people on the planet. And those animals are the only animals left on the planet. What was going through their minds at that moment? I I expect it was likely a mixture of relief and fear, of wonder and uncertainty. They are glad to be off the ark, but now what? 
If ever there was a time when they felt small, I'm sure this was it. What we read in chapter 8 prepares us and prepares them for that moment when they step off the ark and begin their new lives. And what they need more than anything at that moment is the reassurance that God is with them and has set His favor on them. That's what they need to understand above all else. Everything had been lost. Everything had changed. And the terror of God's wrath has now been realized. They watched it. They experienced it, though they were sheltered in the ark. And no doubt, Noah and his family are grateful that God had delivered them through that. But now what? Where do they go from here? Where is God now? Chapter 8 begins with some wonderful words of encouragement. In verse 1, we read, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. In verse 1, we read, or back in chapter 1, verse 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. This is where it all begins. This is what it is all about. Before we actually see the work and before we actually experience um, the, the details of what God is doing, we are brought to the acknowledgement of God Himself. Right? In the beginning, God. And now here, but God remembered Noah. This is what it is all about. Before we understand any other detail, it is all about us knowing who God is. And now as the creation is reset and we come to, if you will, this new beginning, we are brought back again to the fundamental and the primary focus, who God is and where he is in all of this. And if, if you look at your own life, this is true for all of us, right? This is the question that must overshadow every event of our lives. It must direct every aspect of our thinking and our responses. Who is God and where is He in all of this? When you face temptation to sin, your mind must come back to this. Who is God and where is He right now? You go through the valley of the shadow of death in your own life. You feel alone. You're frightened. You're frustrated because life just isn't working out. You must come back to the question, who is God and where is He in all of this? And that question must drive us to the Word and drive us to our knees as we seek above all things to know this God and to submit ourselves to His good and sovereign will. And here, in Genesis 8, after more than a year of drifting in the ark, and now with the prospect of starting a new life in a new and dangerous world, alone, what Noah and his family need most is to know who God is and what He's up to. And right at the beginning, that question is answered, but God remembered Noah. That's a stark contrast 
to what we read in chapter 7, verse 23, that God blotted out every living thing. He wiped out the rest of creation, but he remembered Noah. Now, that doesn't mean that he had forgotten. Right? There's, there's nothing in this text, there's nothing about God's character that says God, God, oh, oops, God could have done this in three months, but he forgot. No, that's not what this means. God never forgets his people. But scripture speaks of God's remembrance. And when it speaks of God's remembrance, it always has to do with God taking action on behalf of his people. So God sovereignly preserves them through the flood. They are always in his care. He never forgets them while they're in the ark. But now he is going to take further action in their lives for their deliverance and for their good as they now prepare to begin their lives on this new earth. And the rest of chapter 8 reveals three ways God remembered Noah, three ways that he reveals his character, his work, and his relationship with his people. And those three ways can be summed up in three key words, providence, revelation, and fellowship. Providence, revelation, and fellowship. What we need most is what Noah needed most. Above all other things, what we need most is to know God and to be rightly related to Him so that His work in our lives is for good. And so we notice, first of all, then in verses 1 through 12, the providence of God. The word providence has the idea of God's oversight, God's control of the universe over the function of the universe and even over the affairs of men. Do you look at the details of history, the events of the world we live in today as under the providential hand of God? We don't see the word providence in this passage, but evidence of it is clearly on display all the way throughout. And it has been from the very beginning. In every detail, at every moment, in every place, for every person, we see God is, is in control and He is at work according to His will and His purpose. And so in this passage, God's providence is on display uh, in His control over nature. His control over nature. In the middle of verse 1, we read, And God made a wind blow over the earth. It doesn't say that a wind blew. It points directly to the activity of God. God made a wind blow over the earth. Now, I don't know if there was wind on the earth before the flood. I don't know. Maybe there was. Maybe there were cool breezes. The climate was completely different. The atmosphere was completely different at that point. But I suspect that this wind is a new experience for Noah. I suspect it was a strong and sustained wind since God's purpose for it was like a celestial fan to dry out the entire earth. But what is clear is that this wind was under the control of God himself and he used it. For his purpose. Likewise, we read at the end of verse 1 and through verse 3, and the waters subsided, the fountains of the deep, and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens 
was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. So not only do we see God's providence at work in the wind, but also in the receding of the waters. Just as they had risen at God's command, so also they recede at God's command. And just as the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were opened at God's command, so also they were closed at God's command. Now, I want to say a quick word about that 150 days. I don't want us to be confused as, as you trace the timeline here. At the end of verse 3, it's not my goal to create a timeline for us of the events, though I think it would be a fun exercise for you to do that on your own and to look and see uh, references and, and time references. Remember that the time references are are given based on Noah's age. So these aren't dates. These are days according to Noah's age, right? Um, so that's important, but you can trace that through. But when it says that after at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, that's not telling us that all the water was gone, right? We're going to see that um, they're actually still not yet quite halfway through their time on the ark. They've got a long time to go yet still. But what they're seeing is there is evidence now that the water is going down. And these specific details of days and, 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 um, and times and all of this is another indication that this is a literal account. This is a literal record of events. But as we're going to see in verse 4, the water had gone down now at this point enough for the ark to run aground on the mountains, though they still have a long way to go before the earth is dried up and inhabitable again. And so in verse 5 we read, the waters continued to abate, and in the tenth month the tops of the mountains were seen. So here we see God's providence at work in His control over nature, the wind and the waters. Now, what is significant about that is throughout Scripture... Control over the weather and over the elements is always a sign of deity and divine intervention, right? Consider when Jesus calms the storm in Matthew chapter 8, or when he walks on water in Matthew 14. What is the response when the disciples witness that? Hey, that's really cool. I wish I could do that. No, that's not their response. Their response is, what manner of man is this, that even the winds and the waves obey him? And they actually say, go away, <laughs> you know, depart from us. They are scared to death. Why? Because they know that what they just witnessed is something only God can do, and they have come face to face with God. We see the providence of God on display here through nature. And then when we get to verse 4, we not only see His providence displayed in the wind and in the water, but also consider the landing of the ark. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Notice the time reference as compared to verse 5. This is before the mountain, the tops of the mountains were seen. They're still high up in elevation. And the ark came to rest on the mountains. Now, we don't know exactly what elevation this was. 
where they were, but it was high enough that they still had to wait over four more months to get out of the ark. So they're still up there somewhere. You ever been up in the mountains that high? How many level pieces of ground do you find up there when you can barely even see the tops of the mountains? Think about this. A 450-foot box landing in the mountains. I'd say it's a high likelihood that the ark is going to land at a steep angle in some way, right? Which was going to create all sorts of chaos inside the ark. But God makes sure to land this thing in just the right spot so that everyone and everything inside is safe and so that they are actually in a spot that when it comes time to get out, they can get out. So not only is God providentially at work in the storms and in the wind and in the water, but he is at work in the safe delivery of his people to their destination. Don't underestimate that power. It makes me think of when God delivered Israel from Egypt, right? He didn't just rescue them from Pharaoh. What did he do? He rescued them from Pharaoh. He took them through the Red Sea. He preserved them in the wilderness and delivered them safely to their destination in the promised land. Every step of the way, God sovereignly worked out every detail for the safety and deliverance of his people. It was a complete salvation. His salvation always is. And so when you are tempted to question where God is in your life, just remember, your salvation has not been completed yet. There is more to come. And so he is at work bringing you all the way home. And then as we get to verses 6 through 12, we see a growing reminder that God's providence is still at work even if mankind sees little or slow progress. You think Noah and his family got a little stir-crazy on the ark? I think so. Mine would have. There's no question this was a long and lonely year for them. And once the rain stopped... Then the long extended time of anticipation begins. Noah, so at, at this point, Noah opens the windows of the ark in verse 6, and he sends out in verse 7 a raven, and it doesn't return. Supposedly, from what I understand, that's no surprise. Since the raven is a scavenger bird and will eat just about anything, it seems that the raven found some sort of food floating on the water somewhere and did not need to return. But then later, still hoping to learn some good news and, and see some progress, Noah sends out a dove in verse 8. Now that dove is a gentler and more dependent bird. Finding that the ground had not yet dried out and there was no substantial vegetation yet, the dove comes back to Noah in the ark. Noah waits another week and then sends out the dove again in verse 10. And this time we read the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. And at last we see some exciting news. Progress. There is something going on out there. It's a tangible reminder to Noah that God has remembered them and is completing what he had begun. God's work is still going on even when we don't see it or feel it. 
And the olive leaf itself is perhaps an encouraging sign. The olive branch is often used as a sign of peace, right? And in this case, it could be a sign of peace between God and man, a testimony that God's wrath has been satisfied and that his people are at peace with him. And then after another week, Noah sends out the dove again. Verse 12, this time the dove does not return because she had found a place to dwell. And again, it's a sign that it is about time to get off the ark, that God has been faithful to his promise and has providentially brought it to pass. You can feel the anticipation building now. It's almost time, it's almost time, it's almost time. But we see God being faithful. Though they can't see the progress, though they're anxious to get to the next step, we see the faithfulness of God. And what we learn about God in this account is, a tr- is true about God in every age, at every moment. He is not a God who is aloof or who is unaware or who is unconcerned with what happens in this world. He is not ignorant of anything. In fact, He is intimately acquainted with And he is intricately involved in the function of the universe and the affairs of mankind. He knows everything that is happening in your life right now. And he uses it all. He is in control of it all. And he uses it, even nature and history, and he uses it to accomplish his justice and to draw people to himself and to preserve his people. And I would encourage you, if you want to see the extent of God's providence, this afternoon is your homework assignment. Read Psalm 104 and see the long list of natural elements that God has under His control for His purposes. Truly, as one theologian has so famously said, there is not one maverick molecule in all the universe. It all exists by God's power and performs God's will at His command. This is the providence of God. Our God knows, and He cares, and He takes action on our behalf. And His promise of salvation will in no way fall short of our safe arrival into our eternal home. That's a truth to remember as we go into an election season, right? as we go into it, as we're in the thick of it right now. As you face circumstances that could be life-changing and you don't know where this is going to end up, God's providence will not stop one inch short of our safe delivery to our eternal home. He literally moves heaven and earth to accomplish His will. So, whatever you must endure in this life, Christian, you must remember and rest in the providence of your sovereign God. Now, let's move on to verses 13 through 19, and we'll notice, secondly, not just the providence of God, but the revelation of God. And here we take a step further And we see that he is not just in control of all that happens in this world, but he also reveals his will and his instructions to mankind. He makes himself known to us. As Noah waited in the ark and looked ahead to his new life in this world, and as we navigate 
the difficult and sometimes uncertain moments of our lives, we need to know not just that God has, is in control, but we also need to know what He expects, what He wants of us. So often we get ourselves worked up, don't we? In grief over what we have lost or in fear over what we don't know. And when we give in to this, we begin to take matters into our own hands and to trust in our own strength and to act on our own ideas. And that no doubt leads us into sin and into disappointment and disillusionment because we turn away from God and we often make matters worse. What we see in this passage is incredible patience and submission on the part of Noah. Most of his time on the ark was spent not in hunkering down and hanging on in the storm, but in waiting alone in silence. And in these verses, we do not see Noah running ahead of God's direction. As the earth dried out and it became apparent that the time is near for him to get off the ark, as he does this thing with the birds and he can figure out that the earth is now dried up, what does he do? He waits until God speaks. And so in verses 13 and 14, we see that the, that the earth finally dries out enough for them to get off the ark. And then in verses 15 to 17, God finally speaks and gives his commands. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. He gives two basic commands now. Get off the ark, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. And in these commands, we are reminded of the original creation mandate back in Eden, right? We're taken right back to the original creation to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's a reminder and an indication that God's purpose for mankind still stands and that this purpose is good and that God cares for his creation and he will work for the good of his people by his grace. He had destroyed the earth, but for those whom he had saved, he still plans to accomplish his purpose. He restores them to that original purpose. And then in verses 18 and 19, we see that Noah obeys just as God commands. So Noah went out. We have grown to expect this from Noah, haven't we? Every step of the way through Noah's life so far, we have seen him simply obey what God has said. There is no way he could have understood or imagined the flood, nor the reasons behind every detail of God's instructions. But he didn't need to understand. He believed God. He walked with God. So when God spoke, Noah listened and obeyed. Noah moves at God's command. And when God commands, Noah moves. And likewise, this is the orientation of all who belong to God, who walk with God. We understand that not only is God in control of all things and that He is trustworthy and good, but He also has revealed Himself to us in His Word, and He has told us what He wants, and He has told us what we need to know. And so if He hasn't told us, we don't need to know. 
And what we need to know, He will tell us when we need to know it through His Word. So our task is not to understand everything. Because we won't. Our task is to obey. Our task is not to reinterpret or redefine or reinvent or reapply what God has revealed. It is simply to obey. We are not to rewrite what God has said according to our own understanding or to make it palatable to others. It is to obey. And truth be told, it is the Christian's joy to obey. Why? Because our obedience is rooted in faith and trust in a sovereign and trustworthy God. Christians do not obey God because God is an evil taskmaster who whips us if we don't. God doesn't lead His people and His people don't obey because of intimidation. We obey because we know He's good. We know He's in control. We know He cares. We know He will finish exactly what He has begun. And we know He will fulfill everything He has promised. So whether we understand or not, whether we know every detail of the future or not, we obey because we trust. We have faith. And so we walk with God according to His Word. Let me ask you this. From the Word of God, what do you know? Right now, what do you know that God wants you to do that you are not yet doing? What do you know that God wants you to do or how He wants you to behave right now that you are not obeying? We can spend all of our time in anxious speculation about the future, but it does us no good. Get busy now by obeying what you already know. And if you need to know more, God will teach you. He will lead you. God's Word is our most foundational and ultimate guide for life. And it is sufficient. It is sufficient, Christians. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative because it is inspired by God himself. And it is inerrant and it is profitable as we read in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And we read in 2 Peter 1, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. God is active in this world and He is active in the lives of His people through divine providence and through His revelation. And when we try to overstep either His providence or His revelation, <laughs> we make a hash of everything, right? We're not called to do that. We're called to trust and obey. That brings us finally to verses 20 through 22, where we see the fellowship of God. It's here that we see Noah's response to all that has happened. These verses are all about Noah's worship to the Lord. 
and all about God's covenant response to Noah. They show us in these verses that God draws near to his people and his people draw near to him. It's important for us to notice that the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is worship. We read in verse 20, Then Noah built an, ar- built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. There's a change here in the name of God that is used. We're back to the name Yahweh again. That's the covenant name of God that is used in Scripture in regard to the people of God and the work of salvation in their lives. Noah is recognizing God in this way, and so he offers burnt offerings on an altar to God. This is an act of worship that has a couple clear aspects to it. On one level, this was an offering of gratitude, of thanksgiving for God's undeserved favor and salvation through the flood. Lord, you carried us through that, and we are grateful. But then on another level, on a deeper level even, this was an offering of dedication and consecration to the Lord. In the Old Testament, the burnt offering was the offering that was completely consumed. There was nothing left over of the burnt offering. It was a picture of one's wholehearted devotion and dedication to the Lord. And this, what Noah does here, is at the heart of every Christian's worship, is it not? If we are in Christ then we recognize we have been rescued from sin. We have been rescued from eternal judgment. And we have been rescued not because we deserve it or because we have earned it in any way, but because God has set His sovereign grace on us. And when we consider the severity of our sin and we consider the magnitude of the judgment that we deserve and the greatness of the salvation that we have been given by God's mercy and by His grace alone, This is why we worship. This is why we gather together. This is what brings us together. Because we are different people outside of this gathering, aren't we? We have different personalities, different experiences, different hobbies and preferences, and and, and all sorts of different things, but what brings us together is this. This is why we gather. This is why we pray. This is why we sing. This is why we study the Word, and this is why we take the Lord's table together. We worship because we know what we have been saved from, and we are thankful. Christian, Are you thankful enough to lay your entire life down at the feet of the Lord to do with whatever He wants? Are you thankful to the Lord enough to lose everything for Him? If you are not, then you are not thankful enough. This is the heart of Christian worship. This is the magnitude, the greatness of our salvation. And the only natural response after 370 days in a box, is to get off and and worship the Lord and, and not only thank Him for His deliverance, but to say, I am yours. Why? Because I've seen in the last 370 days who you are.
how could we do anything less than to worship Him in gratefulness, thanksgiving, and wholehearted dedication to Him? But what's even more amazing than this act of worship that Noah does, what's even more amazing is the response of the Lord to His worship. In verses 21 and 22, we see, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Look at that. (laughs) They're still sinful. But God makes this promise. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah's worship was pleasing to the Lord, not because of his outward performance, but because it was from a heart of faith. He was not going through the motions like Cain did. But he was worshiping from the heart by faith with full devotion to the Lord for who he is and for what he had done. He worshiped in spirit and in truth. And God's response in these verses is the beginning of what we know as the Noahic covenant. We're going to talk more about that in chapter 9. But the essence of it right here is that God makes a promise. As long as the earth remains, there will never be a judgment of this magnitude again, even though mankind is still sinful. The next judgment of this magnitude will be at the end of the earth, at the end of the age. But with this promise, God ushers in, if you will, a sort of age of grace and an age of long suffering in which he opens the opportunity for mankind to repent and to be reconciled to God and to have fellowship with him. And he calls us to that fellowship. You look around at all the evil in this world. And you ask, why doesn't God just drop the hammer of his judgment on the earth today? And it's because he's giving people like you and me an opportunity to repent and be saved. But as we talked about last week, that patience will run out. And so I plead with you, if you do not know Christ as your Savior, do not delay. Come to him in faith. But what we also see here is this fellowship relationship with God. As Noah worships the Lord, we also see God is pleased by the worship of his people. Isn't that amazing? You think about that. God, in the context of expressing his pleasure and his response to this worship, still acknowledges that man is deeply sinful, and yet we still see he is pleased by the worship. (laughs) Why? Because they're his people. He has rescued them. He has drawn them in. And he is a gracious God. Now, with all that we've seen uh, about God in Genesis, we see his perfection and his holiness and his righteousness and his justice. Why would he want that kind of fellowship? Why would he have any interest in fellowship with sinful men? You know, ultimately we don't know, except to say with the book of Ephesians that it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. But by that grace, and in his love, 
He makes it possible. And all we can say is, praise His name. Which is what Noah does with his offering. Lord, I don't know why you saw fit to preserve us, but you have. And we praise your name. And we lay our lives at your feet. Now, he's still sinful. We're going to see that as we continue on in Noah's story. This is not talking about us having to be perfect. God knows we're not, but he sets his grace on his people. He has given us the opportunity to know him, to fellowship with him. This God who exercises providence over every square inch of this world and every function of the universe and every affair of mankind has revealed himself to us and has expressed his desire for fellowship with mankind. What an amazing thought. Friends, do you know this God? Do you have this kind of relationship with God? He is the holy God who will have justice and who will punish sin. But he is a gracious and loving God who sets his grace and his love on his people and he remembers them and he cares for them through his providence. He reveals his will through his word and he offers joyous fellowship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. There is no greater purpose in this life. There is nothing else you can give your life to that can compare to laying your life down and having that intimate fellowship with the God of heaven. There is no greater purpose in life than to cast ourselves into his sovereign and saving hands. As the psalmist expresses it in Psalm 16, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You won't find that anywhere else in this world. But you will find it in abundance. In our sovereign God. And all of this is ours. If we will receive them if we will bow before this awesome God, and if we will call upon the name of Jesus Christ alone as our Savior and Lord. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is what you most desperately need. You need to have this fellowship with Almighty God. And I beg you today to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture says you will be saved. And Christians... This is what you most desperately need. To remember the providence of your God. To trust in His sovereign care and control over your life. His plan for you will not deliver you one inch shy of your eternal home. You are secure in Him. These pleasures forevermore belong to you in Christ. So take heart today, Christians. Whatever you're facing, be encouraged in the Lord your God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the encouragement of your word. 